When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for checking out Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us the Podcaster Essentials Kit. The Lira mic and the headphones are amazing, high-quality pieces of equipment that will help you start your own podcast, if you've ever thought about doing such a thing. Now, I don't believe I've ever had a guest more self-deprecating than Mike Connell, particularly concerning the band he founded with his brother and some friends, the Connells. Through everything, local gigs and homemade demos to radio hits and opening for Def Leppard, he has remained appreciative of the opportunities that have come his way, treating each album like it was the last one they'd be allowed to make. Mike talks about playing in a band that was really starting to get a following while attending law school and taking the bar exam, tour vans catching fire, and the bond that forms when you play with the same people for over 35 years. And in addition to having a track on one of the strangest albums of cover songs ever conceived, the Connells have a brand new album out called Steadman's Wake. Pick it up wherever you get new music. Follow the Connells for info about shows and more at The Real Connells on Instagram and Connells Music on Twitter. Follow us at Performance ANX on both. Get merch at performanceanx.threadless.com or help support the show through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. If you missed this episode with Mike Connell, you must be insane in the membrane. Thanks for listening to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, this is Mike Connell from the Connells. Uh, we got a new album out for whatever reason. Um, it's called Stedman's Wake. Um, if you're so inclined, please give it a listen. This is Performance Anxiety. It's been a blast. Um, Mark, thanks for having, having me. Uh, you know, to, for, for forfeiting a good, good hour and a half of your life that you'll never get back. So, uh, thanks very much. Uh. And the dog. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'll wheel it around. I was just going to take the dog down the driveway. Oh, no problem. Do you, do you want me to give you a couple minutes and we can do this in a, in a little no. bit? Yeah, no, this is perfect. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. And, uh, I'm going to be sipping on some Prosecco in a little cup. So Nice. Uh, yeah, my wife got uh, her review at work, and it was good. So we're celebrating. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Nice. Re- recording a podcast and having Prosecco in a cup. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a nice combination. <laughs> congrats, right. uh, congratulations to your wife. Well, I will pass it along. Thank you. So, of course, yeah. It's just it's just you tonight. So we we were going to have Doug on, but something came up. So we are on. We have one Connell on the episode right now. So I can't go back and forth. I can't pit one against the other. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a pity. There would have been some real fireworks. 
Yeah. Had that been the case. <laughs> so, yeah, you're regrettably left with me. Oh, Doug's and... far more interesting than I am. Well, now we could just talk about so, Doug. Okay. <laughs> it works. <laughs> All right. But there's not enough saying Doug Millen. You know, 37 years I've been with the guy. Wow. I'm still scratching my head, you know, routinely. So but I, I, I love the guy, but uh, he's he's a unique individual. Um, so, <laughs> well, I'm I'm anxious to hear some stories. Then we're getting a little lag. So if if I'm gonna try to, if you hear it like a little gap or pause, it's just I'm just trying to not talk over you. So okay, and I'll try to keep that that in mind as well. I'll try to remember that. I should I guess is the better way to say that. The way I like to usually start everything is to find out about how you got into music in the first place. You're in the band, The Connells, with your brother. And we were talking about Doug a little bit, but you're also in with your actual brother. Were the two of you always musical? Was there a lot of music in the house when you were growing up? Or uh, were you guys just kind of the, the, the black sheep of the family? Your parents had no idea where you came from? Huh. Uh there um, was not a lot of my parents. Uh, I mean, you know, they were, you know, I remember they had, um, you know, albums, Broadway shows and that sort of thing, okay. but they were not into popular music. And so uh, I was born in the late fifties and, you know, about 1965 or, or even yeah, thereabouts, even at the age of six, it was, it was impossible not to be aware of, well, the Beatles, and everything that followed the Stones, of course. Um, I mean, you know, Ed Sullivan came on Sunday nights. Yeah. And uh, so I was captivated by what I was hearing and then had buddies whose older brothers had, and sisters had um, had these records that they were playing. And so, I mean, I, I realized pretty early on that uh, whatever these folks were doing, you know, that held a lot of appeal to me. So my dad did happen to um, come home with guitar when I guess I was in about the second grade. He was convinced that he was going to learn to play. He lost interest quickly. <laughs> and the guitar just, yeah, sat there in the corner collecting dust. And then I finally, uh, the nerve to, you know, ask my dad, if it'd be okay for me to have a go at, at the guitar. And uh, he was, you know, absolutely, he was more than, than, uh, than happy to, to allow me to do that. And so, nice. yeah, I mean, it was uh, second and third grade that, that I, I grabbed his guitar and started trying to figure figure it out. And then you actually it was, jumped into bands pretty quickly after that, from what I understand. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, and you know, the neighborhood there were kids who, you know, there were there were a couple of guys who were also trying to learn guitar. And I think I got my first amp and electric guitar in the fifth grade, which was brave of my parents. But I mean, you know. There were, <laughs> I wasn't uh, hitting the sort of decibels that, uh, you know, subsequently hit. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and so I mean, I, I swear, I think uh, fifth or sixth grade, me and some of the guys in the neighborhood, you know, this w again would have been mid to late sixties. So uh, psychedelia and the words uh, psychedelic was, was everywhere. Right. And so we, we called our band uh, psychedelic butterfly because Buddy's older brothers had Iron Butterfly, and you know it was. But yeah, yeah, started at an early age thinking that being in a band would be a really cool thing to do, and so yeah, and from there it was in a series of of you know similar sort of neighborhood type bands. Okay. Um, but yeah, nothing obviously that 
amounted to anything and no attempt at that age really to uh, no thought at that age of trying to write original tunes except you know, so for the was, psychedelic uh, butterfly theme song i understand well there was that there was that uh, <laughs> yeah i guess i was really early on taking a stab at some songwriting um <laughs> which was uh pretty woeful yeah but uh <laughs> The impulse that whatever that impulse is, you know, that makes you want to pick up an instrument and try to come up with with something, you know, that maybe wasn't there before. That's a pretty strong uh, impulse, and I still occasionally, you know, will feel that, but nothing like uh, not, nothing like it was when I was a younger person. And you know, then it started hitting the peak. By you know, by the time I was in college, it was like this is okay. a thing I, I do really want to try, and no surprise. You know, this was uh, late '70s, and you know, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, and all this right. stuff coming from England, and then the Ramones closer to home, and uh, you name it. I mean, it was it was a REM, of course, in, into the early '80s. So it was an exciting time. So was your brother? Uh, in, way ahead. Was your brother in the bands when while you were playing in in elementary school, middle school, high school? Was he in those bands with you? He was not. Oh, he um, okay. he was finally persuaded to take a bass guitar because it's lower on the evolutionary scale. <laughs> and, you know, the, and having never played anything, it's like, David, you know, I, I was, like I suggested a second ago, I was really kind of starting to try to write songs. And so I thought that it would be uh, cool to see what these ideas for songs sounded like with, uh, with the bass part. So he was uh, eventually, uh, you know, persuaded to pick up the bass and um yeah obviously it was uh, a steep learning curve but um <laughs> he got the hang of it more quickly than i thought that he would oh. and and then he came to me at some point i was in law school i i stayed in chapel hill where i'd gone undergrad and um okay. but david david younger brother was still undergrad and one of his buddies a guy named john schultz the two of them would meet. It's uh, like a practice space every Friday afternoon for about an hour, maybe two hours. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, so it was, and Schultz played drums. So it was just my brother and this guy, a rhythm section. And uh, David pointed out to him one day that his older brother was uh, played guitar and was starting to write songs and could, you know, could my older brother join us? And the answer, of course, was yes. And so the three of us then started working on these uh, songs, ideas for songs that I was coming up with. And as it happens, one of John Schultz's uh, great childhood friends was Doug McMillan, who was at a school an hour and a half east of uh, where we were in school. And so he, he dragged Doug in one day. And of course, Doug couldn't sing. He still can't. But uh, <laughs> that, it uh, it didn't didn't seem to matter very much because, you know, the thought was, if we're lucky, you know, we might get to play in the bar down the street at some point. But right. there was no thought beyond that, really. So it, it didn't seem that the lineup required a whole lot of consideration. And so, yeah, it was like, sure, you know, you got the gig if you want it. Oh, and wow. so, um, nice. Yeah. So, uh, and, and uh, I mean, it was all obviously all a work in progress, but uh, it, it started tightening up and um, we added, you know, we were coming up with new songs. We didn't have the songs. So 
by the time I think we got to number seven, which is the only song that kept the number, and that was on our first album, Darker Days, the song Seven. nothing to do with the number seven or it, <laughs> the number seven the song but that number stuck because that was the seventh song that i brought in to, to work on and so by that point we were starting to think well you know maybe we could be decent but uh it became evident that maybe uh, john schultz wasn't as steady as you would want a drummer to be okay i mean the tempos would typically start out where they needed to start out but then you know would slow down. Right. You know, it just wasn't ideal. So our first drummer, I, I don't know how to say this, uh, Peel had been Peel Wimberly, uh, who became our drummer for about the first 14 years. Right. Was playing with other local, playing with local bands and, you know, was an established drummer and we knew how good he was. And so we approached him and asked if he would be willing to to play with us and uh to our surprise he agreed to and <laughs> so the first time that yeah so doug and david and i showed up um our appeal came over to where we were practicing and it was evident within about 20 or 30 seconds just how significant a, dr a drummer is um, right. <laughs> you know how big a difference that can make i mean he was he's like a metronome peel um, oh man and uh so yeah we, so then we unceremoniously dumped john schultz who had started the whole damn thing <laughs> and it was it was bad it was bad it was bad there's no good way to do that shit so yeah uh we did um and doug and john were you know great friends and their friendship survived that you know the way things often turn out in life for the best um john once he had finished school headed out to uh los angeles from north carolina with a bunch of um other it was kind of like a, um, a diaspora. Um, so all these North Carolina guys end up in L.A., most of whom are still in the entertainment business in some capacity or another oh, wow. you know, since the mid-'80s when they ended up out there, including yeah, – so John Schultz became um, worked his way to becoming a director, and uh, he has directed movies like Aliens in the Attic and uh, Like Mike, that movie about Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so – and now he is, um, he's living, is it the Isle of Wight? It's, uh, or Jersey, an island in the English Channel between England and France. His wife is from there. Oh, wow. And so LA was getting too crazy. They have uh, young children. So he is now uh, living somewhere in, in the English Channel. <laughs> oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. And I think he is still, you know, involved in the industry in some capacity. But um, I mean, a lot of uh, these North Carolina guys have done really well. Uh, so he's uh, anyway. This is all roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, yeah. So Schultz, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we didn't do right by him at all, more than landed on his feet. So that's that's got a happy ending. And uh, yeah, Peel. Once uh, Peel was 
sitting on the skins. You know, it was the four of us, and within weeks, we were playing out in a bar for the first time. And so that would have been September of 1984 okay. that we uh, played out live for the first time. Yeah. How did you guys come to the attention of Ellis, uh, Ellis, Elvis Costello and Demon Records? Yeah, um, the guy who ultimately became the band's manager, but who was just a friend at that point, another college buddy, got an internship in London somehow, the summer after one of his years in school, and then taken a cassette of um, songs that we had demoed, which became Darker Days, our first record. Okay. And ended up somehow at um, you know Demon Records, which was you know like you like you say Elvis Costello was involved in Demon Records. Yeah. And so Demon, uh, I guess, liked what they had heard enough to agree to license the record for release in Britain. So they didn't sign us, but they did a license, Darker Days. Okay. Okay. And released it. I guess it would have been in the fall of eighty, uh, October of eighty six or something like that. So um, th these were still just demos that they're licensing there were, there were i would call them glorified demos okay um i mean we went to some small studios close by but you know that said don dixon worked on some of oh. uh, that record and uh this guy rod abernathy who had been in a band with don dixon called arrogance uh, he co-produced some of it wow and uh so yeah there were some some talented guys who were left to work with some really less than talent, talented musicians. <laughs> I don't so. I don't know if I would say that's the case. I mean, you guys have had a pretty long career here, but so the sound of the band changed a lot over the years. It started off very college radio sounding, you know, bands of that era, you know, uh, REM and there's even like like some cure sounds in there and you started to, to grow and mature and sound more, I guess, poppier would be the best way that I could describe it myself. Was the change in sound just maturity and growing, or was it like a conscious decision to take out some of the, the reverb and, and some of the jangly guitars and, and make it a little more alternative sounding? Yeah, I mean, it was a combination. Uh, when we started, we were, I mean, heavily influenced by some of the bands you just mentioned pretty much for, for a long time in my life. If it wasn't from, from England, I had no interest in it. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the way I felt growing up. I mean, hell, I was living in, in Macon, Georgia in the early 70s. And, you know, all my buddies, of course, with good reason, were listening to uh, the Almond Brothers, obviously, who were living just down the road and, right. and recording their Capricorn records. Otis Redding was from Macon, Georgia. Little Richard was from Macon. Wow. But, uh, I mean, all I wanted to listen to was uh, stuff that was coming out of England. So, yeah, uh, then when we became a band, uh, still heavily in influenced by by British bands. And so, uh, you know, one critic said about Darker Days that, uh, that these guys are clueless for one it sounds like uh they're trying to be rem with morrissey singing uh was uh you know <laughs> the, the, the criticism which wasn't entirely unfair or off base but it's not necessarily a bad thing either no i mean two of my favorite bands they yeah. mentioned in the, but it was a total slag he, he didn't mean it in a, you know right <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't praising us. He wasn't saying these guys pull off sounding like Ari. singing there. It's like this is a this is a feeble attempt at doing that. 
So, and you know, in fairness, yeah, we were, we were trying to find our way and how we still are, but yeah, we, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we had some three and four minute tunes that held together sufficiently to, I guess, warrant being called a a song, but uh, we were just trying to find our way. Like I think a lot of bands do. And, um, you know, after it was done and you've got the thing and you're holding it in your hands, you're holding a piece of vinyl in your hands and you're listening to it and you're going, are you kidding me? I mean, every tempo is like off to the races. What, what the hell were we thinking? So did you, at that time, early on, were you guys touring a lot? Uh, you had, you were, had attended law school. I mean, were you guys working and then trying to tour on your off time or were you doing this full time? Like I mentioned, we played out for the first time in September of 84, and that was the start of my third year of law school. So, I mean, my plan had been to go and finish law school and take the bar and start practicing law, you know, become a productive member of society. But, um, I mean, pretty quickly, you know, people started expressing some interest, I guess, in what we were doing. And and more and more people would come out to the shows. And we uh, early on started, uh, I guess, establishing something of a, a following in our hometown. Okay. And getting some favorable press. Uh, which is uh, uh, perplexing, but, uh, <laughs> but but that that was the case. So that by the end of um, my third year of law school, which you know would have been the spring of 1985, I decided you know to go ahead and take the bar, and then maybe just see for a year or two what could happen with the band, and that it would be easy enough, you know, after just a short time to come back to try to get into practice in law. But so that then ended up becoming, you know, closer to 15 or 16 years that uh, played music before starting to practice law. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Um, so th- that's a long way answering your question. But yeah, no, with, with law school and some other guys in school, there was not uh, we were we just played locally. OK. Um, the first time that we played out of state was in the, in the spring of 85 when we had finished uh, classes, but before taking the bar exam and we piled into a few different cars. We didn't even have a van at that point and oh, drove down to Athens and played uh, the original 40 watt. Oh, wow. Which, yeah. Which is of course where REM had first played yeah. there in Athens. So yeah, uh, that was our first out of state show. Um, the original 40 watt there in Athens. And then once once uh, the bar exam was was out of the way and uh, school was out of the way, then yeah, we started trying to to get out more and more, and we, we became sort of a regional band. We would play in Virginia, d- uh, down in South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, of course, and uh, like I mentioned, the occasional trip a little further afield into uh, into Georgia, that sort of thing. I've heard a couple interesting tour stories, which kind of I thought they were very. I guess I'll just say it again. Interesting. I've heard that uh, you had a tour van catch fire. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> you uh, went to a radio station and accidentally started dropping F-bombs on the air. Yeah, that happened. That and was it- in California. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a DJ, maybe in, um, it was Northern California. I think it was, might've been San Jose. It wasn't San Fran, but it was, Yeah. So, uh, so this guy that we had known for years, but who had left Raleigh, to, uh, you know, for greener pastures in California, you know, threw us a bone and had us t- 
to his radio station, and George Huntley, who was in the band at that point, didn't realize that this was a live interview that, that <laughs> we were conducting. <laughs> and so the DJ, this guy Bob, said you know something good naturedly slagged us somehow, or you know said something you know maybe that was mild, mildly critical, or right. and uh, Huntley says. Uh, yeah, you know, thanks a fucking lot, Bob. <laughs> and you know, uh, his eyes get really wide, and it's like, oh shit, we gotta, we gotta reach out to the FCC about, or we're gonna be hearing from the FCC about this. Uh, <laughs> so, I, which you know, you would, you would know is, I guess, a big no-no. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, no consequence. Nothing came out. Oh, it. that's good. And likewise, the van uh, catching on fire. Uh, fortunately, nothing came of that. But that was that was precarious. That could have been obviously not so great. So yeah, something about the uh, catalytic converter had gotten backed. I don't know. Oh, but uh, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. Oh my gosh! Did you get you guys get your equipment out okay? And well, uh, we got ourselves out okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got we salvaged most everything and. Uh, <laughs> Still managed to play the show that night, unfortunately, because it, I think it was a really shitty show. But, oh, uh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I heard that uh, you guys played in Rome and ended up playing right before Def Leppard. Yeah, that happened. That's um, crazy. That, 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 it was, you guys are like two bands I would not have imagined playing back-to-back. Well, have you ever heard accounts of Aztec Camera opening for Killing Joke somewhere in Britain? No. I mean... <laughs> Oh, talk about lambs to the slaughter. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think that really happened. Yeah, asked oh that camera uh, in front of Killing Joke, wow. which, you know, you, you can imagine how that went for asked that oh, camera. Yeah, those poor bastards. Jeez. Yeah, but so 74, 75 was in the top 10 in Italy at that point. So we got added to this sort of all-day festival in some piazza, which did hold like 100,000 people. And um, so, yeah, they, we were one of, you know, many bands playing. And it did just so happen that Def Leppard went on right after we did. But, <laughs> yeah, I will say, man, those guys took the time to, to even talk to us after we'd finished our set. And they were just perfect. Yeah, I think they're from Sheffield or somewhere like that. I, I mean, so, yeah. Blue-collar guys, absolutely, but so nice and like English gentlemen. And the fact that they even took time to to say hello, you know, was pretty remarkable. Oh. So, yeah, I got nothing but positive things in, to say about Def Leppard. Oh, yeah. And, Been a big Def Leppard fan. They've gone through ups and downs in, in, in my listening rotation, but uh, I've always liked them. So Yeah, likewise. Absolutely. So as things progressed with your discography, I noticed that suddenly when you guys put out Weird Food and Devastation, the band took a turn for <laughs> the heavier. We, so, you know, this is pretty typical of the way that we do things. You know, we record Ring and back into total 
total stroke of luck and farce, no rhyme or reason, back into a song doing well in Europe. Right. And so what do we what do we then do? We go out of our way to create a record as as different as possible <laughs> from the formula we'd worked with up to that point. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean in the record company, TVT is wanting us to follow up, you know, to make, you know, 75, 75, 76. Right. But uh, <laughs> in, instead, instead we give them uh, weird food and devastation. And uh, our sound, uh, sound man, Tim Harper, who's been our sound man for 30 some years, you know, he produced that record and we didn't do him any favors by handing him that bunch of songs to work with. And there, I think, there's some songs on there that that, that I, I still kind of like, but it was, I don't know what was going on. Um, <laughs> well, you know, grunge w was kind of, or the second or third wave of grunge or something that was on the airwaves. And well, so I think you, just, I think you just nailed it. I think that had a lot to do with let's, you know, let's try to veer as much as that we're capable of veering from, again, this formula that we, that we've been working with because the criticism, the fair criticism had been that, you know, these guys are just uh, recycling the same trash and, um, yeah, yeah. So mean. well, I, I might be overstating things a little bit, but <laughs> you know, there's this thing that they do and they can't, they're not capable of doing anything other than that. And so I think there was, yeah, a conscious effort on our part, not maybe to pay some sort of um, lip service to, I mean, obviously we were never going to pull off trying to be a grunge band, right. but I think we thought maybe we could make it a little heavier and uh, we're a little weirder. So I guess we succeeded as far as that goes. Well, I remember um, seeing the album all over the place and I, I my roommate had it at one point at that time. I think it was my roommate or a buddy of mine. I don't know. He, and he would play it all the time. And oh, he likes it. He did. And I'll tell you what, one of my favorite Connell songs of all time is on it. Smoke. I love oh, yeah. that song. That's yeah. the, the guitar solo in that, the tone on that. It's just amazing. Why is it just smoke? Again, uh, sound man. He he got he got some really good tones, but ah, damn man, we uh, you know I just I wish we'd given him a better group of songs to work with. And I was uh, I think I was in not necessarily a really I was in my first marriage, and that was maybe well the fact that anyway it, I was in a weird place in my mind. I'm uh, since remarried, and uh, right. but uh, well that that'll I, definitely influence your songwriting. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Yeah, I don't think I was in a good place. Um, yeah, for sure. So I'm actually looking at the track listing right now, and maybe start fifth fret 
Smoke, like I said, Smoke might be one of my favorite songs you guys have ever recorded. Pretty rough. These are, I like those. Songs. I, I tend to like the heavier stuff anyway. So maybe that's why I like it a lot more. But you took a return to the popier sound on Still Life. It's the way that you assemble. Stops and starts Oh, this still life Has its virtues Cause everything Emotionally Is just left behind Was that because of the reaction you got from Weird Food? Yeah, I think so. I think it was an effort to try to get back to what we had been doing. But man, I, you know, in fairness and in honesty, that I think I like Weird Food better than Still Life. Again, okay. you know there are a few songs that I like. Okay, but I, I yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm not happy with with that record either. And and then this this uh, old school dropouts that we it was just demos that we were making to thinking that we would make another record yeah. for TVT. So songs that we've recorded in our practice space. And then when TVT dropped us, you know, we realized, well, we're not going to go into some studio with some producer and have the luxury of four weeks living somewhere and, you know, going into the studio every day. Yeah. So we got these, these tunes that we demoed, let's just throw them out there. And that, that was weird food. We had never made that available. I don't even know if that was possible at that point to make stuff available for digital distribution. But, um, so we just printed up a couple of thousand CDs and, and left it at that. Oh, wow. So. Okay. Anyway, something's left you breathing hard. Your gladiator heart doesn't seem to want to let you leave the field when all the feelings gone on some sorry day. At this time, are you guys still touring a lot or playing live, I guess, maybe on a regular basis? Well, we had for all those years since really coming off the road, which would have been about the time that TVT dropped us um, again. I guess that would have been 99, maybe, you know, then people, guys started getting day jobs and having children. And um, it was not a fast moving train. It was easy to jump off that bat. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the pendulum had definitely swung really far in the in the the direction bands don't want the pendulum to swing so so yeah it was easy to to make the decision to essentially come off the road and just play sporadically which okay. we kind of had done for all those years up until covid you know we might have been playing a dozen shows on average but uh it would i think it would have been pretty rare that we would have played more than 20 shows a year okay rarely and then of course covid hit so the end of February, 2020, we had played in Richmond and Baltimore. And then of course it was just a couple of weeks later that, uh, you know, the world turned upside down. Yeah. So, so there's a 20 year gap between yeah. albums. Yeah. With the exception of a cover 
that you guys did in 2002 of Cypress Hills Insane in the Brain. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> temper just toss that ham in the frying pan like spam and done when i come and slam then i feel like the son of sam don't make me wreck shit hectic next stick to check i'll be going like general electric and the lights are blinking i'm thinking it's all over when i go out drinking oh making my mind slow that's why i don't fuck with the big four oh bro i got to maintain because a cracker like me is going insane insane in the membrane Insane in the brain, insane in the membrane. Friends insane, got no brain. Insane in the membrane. How did that happen? Because I looked at that album, and it's insane. I mean, you guys doing insane in the brain is amazing, and Don Ho <laughs> doing Shock the Monkey. Those are the two best tracks on that album. Well, Don Ho for sure. I, I, ours, you know. But, <laughs> I love your version of Insane in the Brain. It's incredible. Yeah. It so, kind of threw me for a loop. I wasn't expecting it. No. Well, that, I think that's the whole point of that fucking record. Um, <laughs> the guy that produced it, you know, the title says it all when pigs fly. Like, you know, you're going to hear the Connells playing insane yeah, or any of these bands playing the song they're playing when pigs fly which ain't ever gonna happen but, uh, <laughs> so he approached every band and the deal was if you want on this record you got to do the song that uh you got to you got your marching orders and this is the song that you are going to record no choice in the matter so you know it's one thing to tell us that it's another thing to tell don ho that all right for people who aren't familiar with this album which i I honestly don't know how many people are, but I'll throw out the, the track listing because it is honestly one of the most incredible albums I've ever seen. <laughs> Unforgettable, yeah. the classic Unforgettable, but done by Ani DeFranco and Jackie Chan, Ohio by Devo, which is amazing <laughs> because Casal, uh, he actually attended, they, a couple of them attended Kent State and were there. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're a Cleveland band, right? And yeah. like you say, yeah, I think maybe that might have uh, been the the determining factor in this guy's mind to ask Devo to do that tune. The or box maybe Devo being Devo, maybe they did get some choice <laughs> in the matter. You maybe know? the box tops doing Blondie's "Call Me," God. the Connells doing "Insane in the Brain" by Cypress Hill, Don Ho doing Peter Gabriel's "Shock the Monkey," Roy Clark doing "Wonder Wonderful World." Billy Preston, Duran Duran's Girls on Film, The Fix, doing These Boots Are Made for Walking, The Oak Ridge Boys, playing Kansas's Carry On My Wayward Son, The Neanderthal Sponge Cake, which I think one of the guy who did it, Kevin, uh, what is his name? Uh, The guy who put um, this whole thing together. Uh, Kevin Soling. I think Neanderthal Sponge Cake is is his band. Doing (laughs) Bang a Gong by T-Rex. Herman's Hermits doing White Wedding (laughs) and Leslie Gore doing Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. Yeah, unreal. The fuck? What the fuck is right? (laughs) What the? How? I mean, if I could put together an album, that's the kind of album I would want to put together. (laughs) 
I would want to to find these bands that I like and have them do the most ridiculous covers. It's amazing. The most, the most improbable. Yeah, in our case, certainly. <laughs> I mean, Herman's Hermits doing White Wedding. wedding. Yeah, <laughs> it's on Spotify. It did. Uh, your PR guy did send me the link to uh, the spot. The album is on Spotify, but I have the free version, so I have. I can't just listen to it straight through. I listen to it like two songs, then it goes to something else and then it comes back. So, so, so anyway, the whole point of that was how the hell did you get on that album and and how did insane in the brain get chosen for you guys? Yeah. So, I mean, this guy uh, approached us and and asked if it's asked us if we wanted to be on the record. I mean, it's 2002. We've been dumped by our label and we have the opportunity to get on a record or like, hell yeah, you know, <laughs> sign us up. So we agreed to do it. And then of course, with uh, the caveat being that, well, then you are, you are going to do this song. And uh, so we're listening to it and going, how the fuck are we going to, you know, make this sort of our own. And um, I got an acoustic guitar and we figured out some sort of way to try to make it, um, some to create some melody, um, <laughs> it, it, at least in the chorus part. But yeah, no, I mean, we were thrilled that we were being asked to be involved in something or to be on an album with so many of the bands that you just named. I mean, that, that, yeah, that was an opportunity. We were not going to, uh, we were not going to stare that gift horse in the mouth. Well, so it puts out, and I'm assuming this is the case that you guys have a great sense of humor. I mean, in, in speaking with you now, I, I, so you've got, you've got one. I don't know any of the other guys in the band, but it, it shows that, that the band, you know, you guys don't take yourselves too seriously that you like to have fun. So that, that was a yeah, winner for me. That's a really fair characterization. You know, maybe if we were a better, a decent, a good band, then we might take ourselves seriously, but <laughs> no, I mean, the music doesn't necessarily reflect it, but yeah, we, I, I we typically understand just um, the absurdity of life, really. Okay. And how absurd people would come out to see us and, you know, snap up records and stuff like that. So, yeah, we, I think that we uh, have a, a yeah, enough perspective to understand that um, kind of the absurdity of it all. Anyway. There was this turns out to be a 20-year gap between them. It, it was going to be 19, but COVID forced the delay of, of releasing the new album. Steadman's Wake. Yes. Was, was it just you guys were done with it for 19 years? What stimulated a, a new album? Yeah, we were, not, we were not entirely done with it. And even over the course of those 19 years, we would occasionally you know, make the effort to get together to arrange a song that I'd written and taken in. You know, it's easy enough to, uh, if you got a show coming up, just to rehearse songs that you played 787 times. Right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so much tougher and so much more fraught to get everyone together. And, to you know, for I guess I'm the one coming in with the song and sitting there playing it for these guys and trying not to feel too embarrassed about the whole thing. And then for them to uh, come up with, you know, their own arrangements. So, but even, uh, you know, so over the course of those 19 years, there were those times that I would come in with a song. And it's like, if we are going to be playing live, it, it might behoove us to try to come up with, you know, at least one or two 
new songs every eight years, that sort of deal. So, uh, but we also understood and still understand that when people are coming out to see us, they want to hear songs that we recorded in the 80s and 90s. And so, but yeah, so gradually, uh, again, finally over time, I guess the way to, exp to explain it is uh, we finally hit critical mass. We had you know, 11 or 12 songs, which is sort of the requisite number of, at least to be sort of the requisite number of songs that you would want to, to make a record, Yeah, you know, with the exception of like Mata Hoople, if they have a 12 minute song, um, <laughs> you know, they could get away with seven or eight tunes. Right. And, and I, I do, I understand Mata Hoople well enough to know that they were typically writing four to five minute songs and not... Or if you're Jethro Tull and, you know, one song constitutes thick as a brick, right. you know, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, more than anything, that was it. We got, we looked at around and, and said, you know, we got 11 or 12 tunes and we weren't happy with the last few records that we made and maybe, you know, for old time's sake and just to see if we can still kind of do it in a halfway decent fashion, get back and, and try to do this again. So I think that was the really, I don't think any more thought went into it than that. So there's 11 songs on the album. What's the oldest song on there then? Well, that's a great question. So uh, because, I mean, Old School Dropouts was only, you know, um, we only made a couple of thousand CDs and was not available for digital, was not distributed. I don't know what you call it even. Um, right. We thought, well... There are a few songs on here that we like, and maybe if they were given better treatment, you know, in a proper studio, we'd like them even better. So we, um, I guess the term would be we pilfered uh, a few songs from that from that record, three of the songs. So it would have been one of those three songs that had ended up on old school dropouts okay. that would have been the oldest. So that would be uh, would have been either Rusted Fields or Gladiator Heart. Yeah or Hello Walter. My favorite song on the album is Song for Duncan. Oh, wow. And that sounds like there's a story behind it. Is it, is it just storytelling or is there something behind the lyrics to that song? Please be even. Please be able. Please be everything you've got. Please be steady. Please be stable Please be everything I'm not Will you sleep all night Will you dream all day Will you reach up high And stow your stars away And you run on fumes And you roll on rails And you harvest hope When everything else fails
Yeah, there is something behind the lyrics to that song, which is rare for me. A lot of times it's just sort of stream of consciousness nonsense, you know, um, <laughs> or just total gibberish. But yeah, no, my oldest son is uh, is Duncan. Okay. And so the second song on the record, Fading In, I wrote with my younger son in mind. And then song for Duncan, obviously, I wrote uh, with my oldest child, oh, who's, okay. who's now 17. Yeah. And he he really even when I wrote that a few years ago he um, he it was evident that he w- was um, was going to be interested in, in sort of flying the coop just as soon as he possibly could. Oh uh, yeah. So, so that's that that's the whole already gone sort of thing, already gone mostly. Yeah. So I know that feeling. My I've got a 16, 17, and an eighteen year old. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my oldest just starting college this year. She's going for nursing. My son awesome. is a senior and my youngest daughter is a junior. Oh, that's crazy. So yeah, I've got a, a, a senior and a junior as well. Wow. Um, yeah. It's not easy. No. Man. But everything gets over with real fast. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> everybody, everybody goes through everything at the same time, but then it's over with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I was late to the game. I was, I was zeroing in on 45 when I became a parent um, wow. for the first time. So yeah, my wife is a good bit younger than I am, so which made that possible. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so yeah, two of the songs uh, on the record are about my uh, children. So. You sing more on this than on previous records, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it should become evident why I didn't sing so much on previous <laughs> records. But uh, So why why are you are you singing more on this than Doug? Well, Doug is still singing more by far and away than I am, but um you know, in the case of um, Song for Duncan, given that it is, you know, uh, my kid, yeah, I thought that, that I would try to hang on to that one. And the song written for my other kid, I, I do sing like a, a a bridge part, even though it was evident that Doug was better suited to sing the majority of the tune. So, yeah, and then w- with a couple of others, uh, some songs Doug doesn't ever sort of... Um, understand as quickly as um he does other songs or doesn't make them his own the way that he has done the vast majority of my songs so sometimes i just say doug listen man i'm you know for better for worse i'm gonna sing this damn thing Um, (laughs) and and doug is of course absolutely i mean what's he gonna say nah you know (laughs) you wrote the song but I, i think i'm gonna sing it instead mike so um so that's kind of the way that went well, you guys but, have been um, together for so long. It's got to be like a brotherly relationship. I mean, I'm sure with your actual brother, it's a brotherly type of relationship. But with, with Doug as well, it's, I mean, that, that's got to be a, just an incredible dynamic between the three of you guys. Yeah, no one's, we're not tiptoeing around one another too right. much, <laughs> you know, after all those years. So, yeah, we, we have a pretty good understanding of one another's foibles and, and, you know, shortcomings and, and, and you know, and, and I guess relative strengths as well. I think we understand one another. It's, it would be hard after all those years and, you know, those shared experiences not to have that. So, Oh yeah. F bombs and fan fires. And oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Together. yeah. So yeah. 
Do you guys get to save money and uh, on legal fees and let you handle all the legal work for the band? Oh, hell no. I'm <laughs> no. no, I knew enough. I was so shitty in law school. And, uh, <laughs> no, we, we got a real lawyer to, uh, to handle that stuff for us. A guy named Josh Greer who's been in Manhattan. He went to Duke law school and we knew him, you know, from being in, in the immediate area. Right. Um, Cause he started his own record company called dolphin records back in the day. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. So we've known Josh for, for, for years and years. And um, yeah, anyway, he was heavily involved with fountains of Wayne. And so, um, oh, okay. you know, last year has been really tough yeah. for him for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, yeah. Do you plan on playing shows to support the album or is it, are you guys just going to kind of wait and see what happens? Well, um, so when things were starting to open up, you know, at, at the end of May and in June, mm -hmm. yeah, we played an outdoor show in Durham, you know, which is 25, 30 miles down the road. And we played in Nashville, Tennessee a couple of weeks ago. Oh, awesome. And we got shows coming up in Athens, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, Brooklyn, New York, Chapel Hill, and Raleigh uh, before the end of the year. Awesome. Uh, assuming assuming that uh, the Delta variant doesn't doesn't sideline those shows, so yeah. we'll see. Well, I have kept you for quite a while. We've we've fought through some technical issues and bad connection problems, but where can people find the album? How can they buy it and order it? And what, what formats is it going to be available in? Yeah, it's going to, um, we, I think at this point we've pressed up 2000 albums. Awesome. And I don't know anything about distribution. I mean, I'm so clueless about that. <laughs> the, the business side of music, notwithstanding efforts on a manager's part to get me to understand to some extent what the hell's going on. <laughs> but I ain't no David Lowry. Uh, so, you know, I'm pretty clueless, but, um, obviously through the streaming services, you know, it'll be available and, uh, we're pressing up a few thousand CDs as well. And again, I, you know, the distribution stuff escapes me. So I don't know, you know, do you guys have a, a website or, or social media presence where people yeah, can check Yeah, yeah yes. Um, we do have a website, and then there's a um, through a company called Music Today out of Charlottesville, Virginia, that Dave Matthews, manager, is heavily involved with. Okay, that makes sense. So they would handle, uh, I mean, aside from merchandise, and they, I mean, they're handling, this company is amazing. They're handling... Paul McCartney's merchandise and stuff. Wow. I mean, you, and, and Dave Math, uh, you know, obviously they're dealing with some heavy hitters and uh, like out of a, as a favor, they're handling us as well. So I, I guess it might be possible to order uh, some of this stuff through music today. Again, is the name of the, uh, the company. Okay. And then your website is uh, connells.com. I think that's right. Yeah. Let's <laughs> see. I'm pulling it up right now. Yep. And the album is right there. So it's it's on your music page. And I'm going to take a quick peek. And it's got track listing there. And, oh, yeah, there's a pre-order link right there. So by the time oh, this, wow. this will come out, probably um, around the same time the album actually drops. So it may wow. it may end up actually being an order link and not a pre-order link. But uh, Awesome. Is there 
uh, social media presence in Instagram, Twitter, anything like that for the band? Th- well, actually, I, I, I'm looking I think at both, it right now. Yeah, yeah, I think both. There are links on your website. So I mean, let me click on those real fast. So it's at the real Connells for Instagram. That's right. Yeah, I don't have any of the. I mean, you know, I was asking again today, my wife, if we have FaceTime, and she. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she she ridiculed me, you know, like she should have. I, it's just I'm so it's just unbelievable. Well, your Twitter yeah. your, your Twitter is at Connell's Music, so we'll get all that stuff out for people. Um, and I think you're also on you're on Facebook. You have a YouTube channel, so there's a lot of places where people can find your music. So I want to thank you for spending so much time with me, fighting through these connection issues that we had. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really appreciate it, Mark. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. And it was so much fun to go back and, and listen to the discography again. I hate saying this to people when I have them on, but I mean, it's been a while for some of these, for some bands. And now that I do this podcast, it's even longer. Cause like today I just got a promo album from somebody in the mail. So. I've oh, awesome. It. Yeah. In fact, let me open it up and see who it is. <laughs> we'll do a reveal on the, the hell yeah I, I don't know this might get edited out we'll see it might stay in <laughs> you never know let's see what do we got here oh it is the black watch wow the new album by the black watch so if you like shoegaze <laughs> mike you, you can check out john andrew frederick's the black watch so i'm probably going to be editing this out because I'm not going to promote somebody else's album on your podcast. No, feel free. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the more the merrier. That's, that's, uh, yeah. Oh, man. thank you again for everything. This has been a blast. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Mark. I showed up at Stedman's Wake. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.